0: we're reaching a really interesting space in documentary right now where we have the convergence of narrative techniques being used in our filmmaking process and it's expected more and more for our films to be closer to narrative films than they are to documentaries and so we've kind of walked that line um with the films that we've made um the last two so i uh i started off in gateway i started off i wanted to be a writer and I couldn't write. Well, I couldn't write in the inverted pyramid format, which is my language was very flowery at the time. So I picked up a camera and I started to work shooting and taking photos and shooting documentaries. Um, Rebecca Force was very instrumental in, in getting me started down this path. So I basically was in Gateway and they had Kind of taught us all these different things like sound, recording an audio interview, taking pictures, doing an audio slide, merging the two, shooting a small video, shooting news, writing. So that skill set, and not to pitch too much of the SOJC, but that has been really what has ushered me into this sense of, of this ability to kind of do all things, right? And so My work now is very unique to what I do, but it started off in this same sort of skill set of of working with audio, video, and uh, now I work as a writer as well, and um, I also do a lot in post-production. So the ability and the skills that I gain in this this course was really the start of what became my career as, as whatever it is I do exactly now, a documentary filmmaker, filmmaker, journalist, DP, director of photography. But so I started shooting documentaries at the college. I got really lucky uh, in my first year. I was working with Flux and I happened to be working on a story at the same time that the uh, that National Geographic was working on, and um, basically, I had learned that they were going to be up in Astoria shooting the same story. And this story was about the Columbia River Bar pilots, which these guys have this crazy, this crazy job where they get paid six figures to be on call twenty four seven, and basically get flown in via um, a helicopter or um, a boat brings them into uh, a cargo ship where they navigated through this this part of the bar that is some of the most treacherous water in all the Pacific Northwest. So I started to work on that project. National Geographic was working on at the same time. Um, they called me up to see if I could go shoot some footage for them, and I shot a couple things for them that I'm pretty sure was unusable. And um, they called me back and basically asked what I what I wanted for the footage or how much they would... Uh, how much I would sell it to him for. So I basically was like, I had planned this all out in my head, you know, those those times when you like sort of like walk through something in your head, like, okay, this is the big moment. And I just sort of stopped. I was like, you don't have to pay me anything, um, but I know you're coming next week to Astoria. And if you hire me as an intern, you can just have the footage for free. And they sort of laughed and then they said they would call me back and Three days later, uh, they did. And I worked on my first shoot with National Geographic in uh, Astoria. And, you know, uh, my first shoot was with Bob Ballard, the guy that discovered the Titanic. And um, we were on that roll-proof vessel. And I still get seasick all the time, but I threw up in front of the whole crew. And that was like sort of my first smash into journalism. Um, So, My career has kind of taken some weird twists and turns along the way. Um, I lived in L.A. for a year where I worked as a production coordinator for HBO Documentary Films, which again drove me to that side of my brain where I was very involved in kind of producing and and, and immobilizing crews, the logistical stuff that can make you want to put your head through a window. And it eventually did, and I, I left that job after seven months swearing to myself that I would never take a desk job again and so I went freelance the big scary word freelance and um, I've been a freelancer for eight years nine years now so basically I take the projects I want to I work with the people that I want to but all at the peril of not knowing where money is coming from or how it's all going to unfold but Luckily, we made a project that was very successful. Icarus was a project I started when I was 26. Um, And yeah, I did not know nearly enough to start that project, but neither did Brian. So we were in a a good place. And um, I started shooting that in Colorado for about three months. And then the movie took a pretty dramatic turn. So at 26, I was living in New York, I was struggling quite badly, and this project came along. So Icarus was the start of what would become the Oscar-winning documentary. Um, I could play the trailer for you guys, too. Have you guys—there was like four or five people that have seen it, right? Yeah, okay, I'll play it for you guys. I was thinking that it would start, I ask you questions, and you the answer yes or no. Were you the mastermind that cheated the Olympics? yes today the world anti-doping agency suspended russia's sports drug testing lab 99 percent of russian athletes are guilty of doping it's worse than we thought if this is true it is an unimaginable level of criminality I was helping to facilitate one of the most elaborate doping ploys in sport history. This goes all the way back to 1968. Every sport. Was Putin aware of the existence of a Russian doping system? Yes. We are top level cheaters. This all can be proved. It's quite mind blowing. New York Times is breaking tomorrow. Tomorrow? That has the potential of affecting the credibility of all sport. Why would I watch an event that's fixed? You in any danger? Yes. Oh. I need to escape. Putin will kill me. Holy shit. Putin calls the claims the slander of a turncoat. Two people connected with the Russian doping program are already dead. There never was anti-doping in Russia. Ever. Be very careful what was your recording. Yeah, so if you haven't seen it, I won't. I won't ruin it for you, but the movie started off in a very different trajectory from when we, when I showed up there when I was 26 uh, to start shooting it. And and midway point in the second year, um, I flew to Moscow, Russia with Brian to meet this scientist. The funny thing about that scientist is they actually, Brian and Gregory met on this campus um, um in 2013 and brian had told me we had just started working together and he's, he goes i'm going to meet this crazy russian guy and you don't really need to come it, it, he's he's at some sports symposium at the university of oregon and so in the director's cut of the film or like the film that played at sundance there's this whole scene of him walking brian walking around with like little handicap and they're talking and they go and have a beer at taylor's and they just start like this the start of this relationship was just like this trust sort of starts to build between, them, and it eventually becomes this, this massive friendship that is so codependent on each other, it's impossible to believe that it happened this way. Um, So that was the start of this journey where I kind of was like thrusted to this echelon of filmmaker where it was like, we all of a sudden could do whatever we want um, with a degree here and there. but. Icarus was a pretty spectacular experience and and meeting and working with Gregory rodchenkov has um, been one of the most interesting moments in my career and you know the the part of what they wanted me to talk about here too is demystifying what I do and I'll just demystify right now and say like eighty percent of what I do is dealing with people and the relationships and and I hope that that can kind of transcend regardless of what discipline that you actually are pursuing here at the school. So much of what I do is managing people and getting close with subjects. And Gregory Rodchenkov was one of the first long form sort of subjects where I was able to spend a lot of time with him. And I still have been able to maintain contact with him even now after we met in 2015 in Russia. Omar Abdulaziz, the guy in the beginning, when we first met him, was so unsure about working with us that we had recorded our first interview with him and gave him a stack of memory cards and just said, here, take it. We know you're not really confident in us at this point, or we're not sure whether you want to work with us, so take, take this as a sign of trust. And so, so much of what I do is... I manage the people that I work with, I manage the crews, and I build interpersonal relationships with subjects, with people, characters, whatever you want to call them. And so much of my career has been kind of finding that balance in my life of my personal life and then also these crazy stories um, I become involved with. Mark gave me a book a long time ago, which I I mentioned, and and Gay Talese sort of always talked about how he he loved people at the fringes. He loved these people that were the drug addicts, the, the prize fighters. He has a story about Frank Sinatra having a cold. And he was just this really acute observer of people. And I wanted that. When I read that book, I wanted that. I wanted, like, I was like, does even long form journalism like that even take place anymore? Can anybody write a book like that anymore? I, I mean, I really don't know the answer to that, but for me, the conduit to that world was documentary. So documentaries got me in some crazy rooms and some crazy places, you know, heroin addicts in Seattle, uh, crazy Russian scientists, dissidents, civil war in Ukraine. And I would like to think that every story I tell changes me a little bit. And, and you know, to talk a little bit about that is you spend so much time with these people and ultimately what you're dealing with is a, a, a give and take of trust. And you're trying to cement a relationship where you know you can get an authentic representation of their story. And that's like so much of that is just breaking down who a person is. and Because we, we all have this presentation of ourselves, right? And the more time you spend with people, and in and, and documentary it's great because at this point in my career, people just say, I say I need a month, they give me a month. And I spend a month with people, working with them, going to dinner. Sometimes we don't film for a week. But so much of what I do is really just handling people. And, you know, if there was one thing that I could tell you guys right now at this particular point, and it's 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 hard to think of like, what I would say to students, you know, because I was sitting here not too long ago. 2011 is when I graduated. And so much of what I would say to you guys is, is right now, you have an infinite possibility to do whatever the hell you want. Honestly. I mean, like, so that's like this big cliche, right? You don't have a mortgage. You don't have kids. You don't have a house. You guys are have some student loans, but that's all right. Everybody does. But at this particular point in your life, you could literally do whatever you want. The sky's the limit. You could go out, you could pursue your career, and become anything you want. It's just a matter of finding that thing that draws you to the profession that you want to go into. So for me, it was always the distillation of understanding I just love people, I love being around people. And if there's anything I could say to you guys is there's going to be a ton of critics that say you can't do whatever you want to do. They're going to say, you went to Oregon. You know, that's not a school that pumps out journalists. We only select people from NYU. Or, you know, you work in a small market. Or, I just don't like you. You know, and that's, that sucks, you know? It's like, but you're just going to have to break through all that bullshit, right? And if you want it, you can have it. When I, went to, when I entered journalism in 2011, they were telling me you were never going to find a job. That you were entering a frontier of strip dailies. The newspapers were dying. Everything was morbid. And now I have this career where we just like kind of make documentaries that are pretty cool. And it's all about finding your sort of little place in the sun, you know. And 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 distilling. And this time you have now is you can really distill what you're passionate about. And for all the anxiety of school and assignments and things like that, like just distill what you love about what you do. And it may not be clear right now, it wasn't always clear to me. But in the time that you have here, I mean, the trajectory can literally go anywhere. And yeah, just be fearless, you know? At some point, you're gonna have to realize that being complacent and, and doing the safe route really is way worse than taking big risks. It's, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, doing the same thing over and over again. For some people, they like that. I've just never been a, a person that could really do that. But take big risks, take big chances on yourself. Seriously, you could write the next great American novel. As a journalist, you could make the next documentary that changes the world. It's all a matter of you guys just believing in yourselves and going out and, and really trying and really taking the risks. Because right now, you, at some point, very soon, you're going to have to decide which type of risks you want to take and the type of person you want to be. So that's my Tony Robbins speech. Um, I'd really like for you guys to ask me as many questions as you can. Um, it's more of like I want you guys to tell me Or ask me any questions that you have about what I do or what you guys are going to be doing. This film in particular, like with Russia, it's an age-old foe, right? Like that's a story that everybody can get behind. The problem with Saudi Arabia is there is so much money distributed to all these massive platforms, and there's sometimes there's so little incentive for the truth to come out. So you have to make something so undeniably gripping and truthful and just pray that it it finds its way and the story in that is truth to power we're talking about a guy one journalist who couldn't shut up he couldn't stop talking he couldn't and even his his critic even his his criticism of the crown prince read some of his articles he was so moderate he was he was gentle compared to Omar Abdulaziz and the way he talks. This guy was an insider and he was murdered for speaking his voice. So, like I said, you start to take it really personal as journalists. You know, that's one of you. And there is no playbook to speaking truth to power other than to to show the truth and to fight fight for access, really fight for the story. I mean with this that film with with the dissident, it was really a matter of being like every single day, what am I doing to to bring this story out what am like it starts to weigh on you quite a bit, so ultimately it's your personal responsibility to the story because there's only a handful of creative people that really make decisions on a film, so there's no playbook uh yeah it's just um Sometimes really powerful governments do really terrible things. And America's no different. But to kill a journalist inside of a consulate, that's sort of a no-no. So we went after him. I think it's such a privilege to be in a room with somebody of consequence that has information that could get them killed. And I think it's it's an honor to be able to tell that story. I mean, to have the ability to tell a story of that much gravity, my risk. Those people are, a lot of them, in mortal danger. Like, you saw he, the guy was receiving death threats there. While I was there filming with him, Canadian intelligence that there was, informed him that there was um, a credible attempt on his life. Um, so, the, you, you kind of weigh the balance of the story. And for me, it's always been exponentially to tell the story. And ultimately, you can't live in fear. I mean, this is how dictatorships continue to thrive is they, they force this paranoia and fear and if anything the characters that you work with in your films show you what it means to stick a middle finger up to regimes like that and just keep working keep your head down and just keep working I think it I think it definitely starts with people um, for me because like I, I wasn't particularly interested in taking on Saudi Arabia or anything like that I'd Wasn't really fascinated by that whole thing. Um, But the closer you get with people, you start to find these really human elements that you can relate to directly to yourself. This particular story was so crazy. Can you imagine trying to empathize with this situation, right? So one day your mentor is in Istanbul or any other part of the country for that matter. He steps into a consulate, the next day he's murdered and you yourself are, the head of an international scandal on every newspaper, infamous beyond, famous in the worst sort of way. So I always come from a place of empathizing first and trying to figure out a story, because at, at the people level, that's the easiest way for me to figure it out. They, they'll inform me, so I go into a situation I understand, I've done my research, I've read the articles, I, you know. but it's such a dense geopolitical, Clusterfuck! what's happening in this story. And so I, I just take it from the stance of, I'm not smart enough to figure that out. I'm just gonna sit with the people and start to learn the story from the first-hand accounts. And that's how, and then I start to have informed decisions and then you dive into other things and other things. This movie goes on so many different rabbit holes. We've made two movies, so I can't really give you a playbook of what we go after. Well, I think after Icarus, we didn't mean to take on the Russian government. That just happened as the turn in the movie. Um, with this one, I think we were sort of looking at that infrastructure that was from Icarus that made it such a gripping and timeless story. And we started to deduce down the factors that made it that film. You know, It's like a truth to power story, a story about a couple people and understanding their little snow globe of the reality of the whole story. And then diving into the broader geopolitical context. In the distant, we go into Israeli hacking software. We go into the war that's being waged on Twitter in Saudi Arabia. Um, so we think of a story if it has all these, these pieces to it, right? Because just to say that you're going to take on, say, China. You, you can't take on China unless you have a face, a person, a likable character that can get convince you to pay attention to the broader geopolitical story, right? So we start off in that hotel room, and by the in, by close to the end of the movie, we're so far out. We just, we have to get you invested in learning. So it's almost like the process of making documentaries for us is to combine thriller with nonfiction, and use all these different tools from narrative filmmaking. Like our composer's the composer for Oliver Stone. So like to get you to that place where I can throw information in your head and you're willing to accept it. Because no one's gonna forgive us for boring you, you know? Like with Icarus is a four year process, right? We had hundreds and hundreds of hours of footage. It was just kind of this developing story. With this film in particular, we understood that there was key factors. So as opposed to being the center of the information in Icarus, we were already just slightly on the outside of this massive international scandal that happened, right? And we knew we had to get on the inside. We had to figure out a way, and we isolated three factors, right? the Genghis, who was the fiance you saw. Um, she comes later in the film. Omar Abdulaziz, and the Turkish government. Those three factors for us were what we needed to make the film. So we immediately went, a month after he was murdered, we were so nimble, like we're not a, big production company, so we could just fly and go places and take chances. So we start. we sat down with Omar. Then we flew across the ocean and we went into Istanbul and we, start, we sat down with the Turkish government. And then we sat down with Haticea. And then we did it again and again. And then they finally agreed. Then once we had that figured out, okay, we're making this film, bring in the big guns, give us the money we need, we're ready to go. We start making it. Within that time span, we knew we had a year because of how volatile the the news media cycle is and also how many competing projects were going to be taking place in this span. So that year, which was just this last one, was like 250 days on the road. So constantly in Istanbul. We spent so much time in Istanbul, like uh, meeting with Turkish officials, talking through what we planned, what we had anticipated with the film, why it was worth going with us as opposed to leaking stuff to the New York Times or CNN. Um, So it was this whole process and what really was the driving force was the the door, we couldn't have made this film, this new film, if we didn't win the Oscar in 2017. They just wouldn't have, they would have laughed at us. No one would have let us in the door. So we shot up until uh, the last interview was in the presidential palace in in Ankara, Turkey and then we came back and we got that, that transcript you see in the beginning has never been released to the public. That was something that the Turkish government agreed to release. to um, us, And we got that a month before the film premiered. That if you, any of you guys ever, ever edited something long form, that is nuts. So we had slotted in where it was gonna go, kind of, but they dropped this, this transcript on our table and we had to start cutting it in and so the great thing for us is we're we'll make a film for as long as possible but with Sundance your movie's playing on the 24th if you don't have a DCP which is like the the digital thing that theaters use it's like a big hard drive you don't have that DCP on our desk on the 23rd and they stood and the 23rd is like an absurd amount like no one gets that That sort of forgiveness. But we just like, this just happened. We got this transcript thing. So you set that DCP on the 23rd or your film does not premiere. So we got on the 23rd and that was our deadline. So we edited for about, well, we're editing the whole time, you know, as we're shooting. But once we had all the final pieces and getting all those bits and pieces together, it was about three solid months of like 14 or 15 hour days in in L.A. And then we went up to... um, to Salt Lake City, or uh, to Park City to, to premiere the film. Hillary Clinton was at our premiere and Alec Baldwin. So it's just like, you wanna put every ounce of energy in because you, number one, you have the legacy of this guy and number two, you have an opportunity to really make a, a pretty big change. You know, we've, we're approaching the banned book of movies. We got better reviews with this movie than we did with Icarus. Um, no distributor has stepped up to the table. Um, despite international acclaim for it. So we're working really hard, and with like this new virus thing, we were going to take it to the theaters, but we're now sort of in a weird limbo. But we it's good. It's a really good movie. And, and the truth, I have to believe, will, will prevail. Uh, we really wanted this on Netflix, but it's apparent that there's foreign investment in that platform from Saudi Arabia. So they... Um, <laughs> It's the truth. So, in um, early uh, 2000, oh God, I think it was 16 or 17, they, Hassan Majan, he he had a, a a comedy sketch where he was being critical of MBS for killing Jamal Khashoggi, and, and Netflix yielded to the requests of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia to take that down. So. They came out after that, Netflix did, and they said that they're not a truth to power company. And it's important to distinguish that statement and really think about that. Is it truth to power or is it the censorship of your platform based off of your foreign investment? So yes, Netflix is a great spot. I'd love to tell you that August 5th, you could sit down and and turn on your TV and watch the movie. And I'd love for everybody to know what happened in this case. But right now we're kind of fighting this black undertow that uh, there's a lot of money everywhere. And Saudi money is everywhere. So, yeah, we've speculated for years where where it was going to go. And we still don't have any answers. But I think we're getting close. It's not so I didn't get in this to be the social activism guy. I thought that was always the loftier goals of other people. You know, I've always been interested in people. We've always been interested in fascinating stories and stories that we felt we could really do a lot with. Um, and for me, it's my job to convince you to learn something and to put a, a two hour film together that has you at the edge of your seat. And then all of a sudden you have, you understand the nature of Saudi US relationship. You understand the life of this guy. You understand the Twitter war that's happening. You have understand global espionage. And what I've always thought is is like, activism filmmaking is sometimes very tumultuous. And and, and that you can't be always coming at people with like forcing them what to learn, you know? Or like saying, hey, this is important. Those are, This doesn't work that way. You know, it's like you have to create a piece of cinema that is as close to a narrative film without sensationalizing the material and get them to convince them, you know. And sometimes activism documentaries kind of lend themselves more to this very kind of banal, straightforward. This is the information you need to know. So if if there's any advice I'd give you is just take it approach of the most cinematically compelling piece of work you can filmmaking and then what will happen is be clever about introducing the information and weaving it in so they feel like they're not being forced to learn something in the beginning it's important to leave college with at least some stuff that you've like shot and it's important to think really critically about filmmaking in general of, like what you want to what do you want to accomplish as a documentary filmmaker because there's there's many different um, aspects of documentary that you could go into so like what do you want to be and what do you want to do and then once you get started I think the idea is to shoot to create I mean so much of it is this creating your own sort of projects and and showing what your capabilities are and then when a, a larger company comes along you could be like you know there's a position in LA for a production assistant or there's a there's a production in New York that's looking for a production coordinator. You're just looking in the beginning for that foot in, and as stupid as that sounds. But it doesn't matter necessarily in the beginning like whether it's exactly what you want to do. Um, it's more of like to get the experience of seeing how these big machines work and to not step on people's toes while you're doing it and to just sort of be a fly on the wall and constantly observe and Take as much as you can, and when you feel it's time to move on, you move on to the next thing. But, you know, you kind of, whether it's an internship or whether it's making your own film, submitting it to a film festival, there's no real playbook. It's more personal to who you are and, and what you want to achieve. So this one in particular, right, we have the murder of this guy, right? He was cut up into pieces, this heinous murder, right? Right. We had to work so hard, never to sensationalize. We never, we threaded this line where we were constantly going, is this too much? Is this, none of it's placed out of context, but is this, is this going too far, right? And we, in our visual and our representation of what happened that day, it's fantastic when you're reading those reviews, it's it's sort of like in the bottom sort of section, but to know that, Nobody thought that you sensationalized the murder of this guy. Because you, that is something that hits you in the stomach. But on the flip side of that, it's like we're working to tell you a story that doesn't drown you with sorrow and also can get you involved and engaged in the greater topics of it, right? So we work a lot with the, the writer, the producer. I mean, all these eyes come together and be like, Is this too much? This feels like we need to tone back this graphic or this CGI, or we should use some other image here. We shouldn't use this bite at this particular location because it kind of is entering in a gray area. So there's this constant back and forth of making sure that the film never encroaches a line of entering into a nonfiction gray zone where you're like, you don't wanna ever do that. So we just really thread the line. And you know, in terms of threading the line, I mean that we use all these tools, but we're still t- telling an extremely journalistic story. I think you, there's no getting around that you're a crazy person on these shoots. Like I, I'm directing eight person crews, I'm managing Turkish intelligence, I'm managing Brian, I'm managing a hundred different things at once, and you just start to become this guy. And the one thing, if I could give you any advice on this, is just make a decision and be absolute about it. You can have other perspectives, but just don't, don't get caught in the like, oh, well, I don't, well, maybe we could do it that way, or, well, you can always do it. Then shit doesn't get done. And then all of a sudden, an hour's passed, the thing's not ready, and it starts to fall apart. So, like, if I could give you any advice, just be direct and just. So I start to make decisions, and I I calculate very quickly, and then I just start to go. I go towards one goal, and then all, everybody else in your crew, you have to kind of get them to align behind that, right? The common goal of the film is always built up in like little battles, right? So every scene is this little battle this huge war, and. Then there's this little battle of like whether we're going to get a phone from Turkish intelligence that has this massive trove of information that we need. It's another battle. Then it's the Turkish government whether they're going to give us this transcript. Another big battle that we have to win. So it's all these little things that create this war. And I think on this film, The Dissident in particular, we won every single one of those. And it just required a lot of attention to detail and work and maintaining relationships. And the goal is ultimately a series of assets, right? Scenes, um, uh, intelligence, um, and ultimately uh, character involvement, right? So you're just kind of always working in these little bits and parts. And then we all agree that those facets will make this film and then it comes together. Every single time I pick up the camera, i'm terrified that i'm gonna fuck it up completely every time so it moments in documentary they're so fleeting and they happen in such a like you you could set and light a scene for like two hours and then somebody comes in and talks about like eating a sandwich for like forty five minutes and that's the whole scene, and you're just like I hate my life and then there's the times when you're completely unprepared and then this this spark just happens. So like that room, that scene, that scene in the room, in the hotel room, is threaded throughout the whole film. That is just me and him in a hotel room. I flew up there. He came in. He sat down on the phone. He's speaking Arabic. I have no idea what he's saying. I just knew he was on one. So I just followed him and I got the coverage and I did all this and I sat him down and I had an interview afterwards. And it was just the most powerful, one of the most powerful interviews of the film. So... You can't get caught up in the chaos of it. It's like it's just a part of like, even if you don't go into a documentary, journalism is pure chaos. It's just you have to embrace it. Like the more you come at peace with the fact that you don't know what you're doing, but you're going in some sort of direction, the more at peace you'll kind of be. You know, so you come with an idea and you have an idea for a scene or what this character might give you or thing that this and that or what the might what the film might even be. You have an idea, right? And you work towards that. And then there's so many factors in nonfiction that are completely out of your control and that's what makes it so interesting. So you never know what you're gonna get. So it's more not being scared of the chaos, just embracing it. And that's much easier said than done. But honestly these these are such this one in particular was such a heart attack to work on. It was really a lot of work. So We've just taken a couple months off. I mean, are we have another film in the works, but um, you know, we're 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 not a factory yet. You know, we're still a, a, a more a small core group of people that, and we search for the right story. And when the next story comes, it might be a year from now, it might be five years from now. We'll definitely be working on some stuff in between. But it's we're not like looking to pump out. Um, content We're we're looking for those those stories that we could really just do something with art is never finished it's only abandoned so um that's basically how you feel i mean there's so many you know what kills me is like when you're in a scene and you're like oh god i wish this could really i know what the scene could be or you couldn't film something and your imagination just goes down this like rabbit hole and you just have what you have and um you know, I think you get it to as close as possible and and then you have to just let it go and then it, it enters the world and then it's in that small pool that is the Sundance Film Festival where you have like 2 or 3,000 people that view the film, they all react to it and then you start to take all those reviews and what people said to you in person and you start to calculate, "Oh, well maybe we should change this because it's a little bit unclear." Or, and you start to listen to people's feedback and you make more amendments and you you're like, "Oh, we could lose five minutes out of the film, or we could condense this section, and all of a sudden the movie just gets into this place where it's it's ready to go, and then it's distributed to the world in four or five months, depending on exactly when the release date is but yeah it's um it's difficult it's diff- it's def- and it's definitely difficult like I'm a really relaxed guy in my personal life. But when it comes to filmmaking, I'm crazy about it. Like, I'm just, drives me crazy when something's not right. And I can't sleep about it. I can't let it go. I can't bite my tongue. I just have to say it. I have to say it and I have to keep reiterating it. But I always have a rule. You can say something twice, but you can't say it a third time. You get turned down twice, it's over. So, um, yeah, I think the older I get to, the more I'm like starting to just like be okay with who I am, you know. Like I think, like I'm, I'm. All the guys I worked with are like fifteen, twenty years older than me, and so I'm just aggressively myself now. I'm just like I'm fine with if you disagree with me. I think it's great if we get in an argument. I think it's great that we can have a very compelling dialogue about this film. And I think, I mean, it's a collaboration, you know, of course, and it's not always an argument, but sometimes it is. We had an idea like a, a loose baseline of what a documentary would cost and then it changed midway through and then it ballooned and um, with this project we were basically like I came to Brian and I was like look this is not Icarus and I, the next person that says this is sort of like Icarus I'm going to punch him in the face so this movie is completely different this movie has to be shot twice as good this movie happened in the past it's going to rely on interviews It's going to it's going to rely on all these different factors and not only that, we're talking about a journalist that was brutally murdered. We need to have the best production value for this. We need to spare no expense. We need to take every possible risk we can to achieving the assets. And we, he came to a number for it. He's the money guy. And he did it. And he, everything that I wanted, he provided me. And that's just sort of the trust between Brian and I and some of the other uh, creative guys that I work with. That's rare, you know. I'm extremely lucky to to be able to do that.